Did the election stress you out? The New York Times tweeted tips to calm down, directing followers to plunge their faces into a bowl of ice water and, quote, breathe like a baby. Here at Pulse Check, we think just putting down Twitter could be equally as effective. This is Pulse Check. I'm Grace Scullion. Here's what I'm following. South Dakotans voted to expand Medicaid against the wishes of the state's Republican lawmakers who tried to stymie the effort by raising the voter approval threshold to 60% in June. This matters because it's likely the last time a state will expand Medicaid at the ballot box. Only 11 states have yet to expand Medicaid, and it's unlikely any of those states will put it on their ballots in the short term. After two years of COVID-19 lockdowns that devastated Uganda's economy, a new round of curfews and travel restrictions were initiated to stop the spread of Ebola in two districts. But despite the disease's arrival in the country's capital of Kampala, the president said he would not put the city of 1.5 million under lockdown. This matters because it's a case study for how the social and economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic are influencing how leaders approach new disease outbreaks. And Ruth Reader has been reporting on an under-the-radar Supreme Court case with broad implications for enforcement of individual rights to federally funded services. Ruth, tell me about the case and what each side is arguing for. So the case centers on a man named Georgie Tolevsky, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But Tolevsky had dementia and went into a long-term care facility. I believe it was back in 2016. And basically what happened was in the first eight months that he was there, he rapidly declined. He went in there, you know, being able to communicate, recognize his family, more or less take care of himself, walk. And eight months later, he was sort of fairly unresponsive. And when his family looked into this, what they found was that he had been on some really heavy psychotropic medications. And there was a whole process for trying to remediate this issue, but they ran into issues. And in the end, they ended up suing the facility, which is a state-run facility, for violating their rights under a provision within the Medicaid Act called the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act. Basically, what that does is it says that you can't chemically restrain somebody against their will. So they sued. And what the hospital ended up doing, which is also sort of an agent of the state of Indiana, this is taking place in Indiana, is they ended up elevating the case and petitioning that the Supreme Court should take a look at this case. And their argument is that actually the Medicaid Act, which is sort of a special statute, right? But basically what they're saying is that the Medicaid Act doesn't necessarily confer rights that are protected by a very old Civil Rights Act of 1871. And there's this section within it, 1983, which essentially gives people the ability to sue if their federal rights are violated. And the reason it does this, the reason this law does this, is because at the time of Reconstruction, Black Americans were having their rights violated left and right. And so this gave them a mechanism by which to, to hold people accountable and make sure that they could have their rights. 
And so to bring it back to this healthcare center, what they're saying is that, well, actually, does the Medicaid Act really give people federally protected rights or does it give people rights that they can sue if violated? That's sort of the question. And then they ask the second question, which is whether specifically the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, whether that right against chemical restraint and unlawful discharge, whether or not those are protected under this 1871 law. Those are the questions before the Supreme Court. As you can see, it's sort of very in the weeds about sort of defining what rights really are. So it sounds like the question before the Supreme Court is if an individual Medicaid recipient can sue if this specific Medicaid Act is violated. Correct. So one of the arguments that came up from HHC, which is the petitioner in this case, or I should say the lawyer for the petitioner, he said, like, obviously these are rights that, you know, can be enforced, but aren't these just instructions or directives to the nursing home, like the nursing home must do this, rather than sort of saying, can a person sort of individually sue someone or a state-run healthcare organization when their rights are being violated? Got it. So if the individual can't sue the individual like Medicaid recipient, then it's the job of the government administration to like crack down on these violations. It would be, right. Well, and so this is another question. So here's the counter opinion. Tlefsky's case sits on a lot of precedent. So basically, this is kind of the way that things have always been done. Typically, you know, Medicaid recipients can sue based on this law. It has generally been agreed upon that these, that the Medicaid Act does confer federal rights and that those are protected by that Civil Rights Act of 1871. And so that's sort of generally accepted. And so what the healthcare organization is saying is, well, we think you should take a second look at that. The reason people are so interested in this case, and a lot of people are interested in this case, is because it has the potential to have a lot of ripple effects. Because if it's not just about the Medicaid Act, there there are several other programs that operate similarly to Medicaid. Think about nutrition programs like SNAP or foster care or even federal housing programs. This would basically say that, you know, if you are a recipient of those programs, any rights that you are sort of given through those programs, they have to be remediated in a different way. Like you can't just privately sue when you have issues. Mm. So there have been 25 briefs filed on this case by outside parties, basically trying to provide the court with a lot of additional context about these rules and how they function and why they're important. One of those was a brief filed by former senior officials of the Department of Health and Human Services. And basically what they said is that HHS really isn't in a position to remediate every single Medicaid violation. It would be really hard for them to do that as an agency. Also, it would probably cost a lot of money to do that. (laughs) And that's sort of really telling because that would be one of the agencies that really has to step in if people don't have a private right of action. Mm. So if the individual can't sue, the agency just has a huge burden, both financially 
and like bureaucratically to sort through all these complaints. Yes, it would basically make enforcement really difficult. Mm, Okay. And what are the next steps for this case? When might we see a ruling? So we will see a ruling by June next year, but there's some thought that it might come before then, um, just from, you know, other lawyers in the field who are sort of watching the case. You know, there's a lot of precedent in this case, and they seem to, you know, it was a long proceeding, but they had really specific questions, and they seem to be very well read into the case. So they may already have some thoughts about what direction this should go. Well, thank you so much, Ruth, for walking us through that. It's a complicated one, but you were able to break it down. So thanks. Thanks, Grace. Some countries did better than others at managing COVID-19, but that doesn't mean the best performers at disease control have the populations best protected against the virus. Paradoxically, you know, success in the past puts you at risk for the future, so. This is Chris Murray. I am the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Chris Murray and his colleagues have estimated immunity to COVID by country. Well, uh, some of the main findings are that there are, uh, depending on where you look, uh, there are a lot of people that are susceptible to getting infected. You know, I think at some point in the epidemic, in a country like the U.S., you know, 95% of the population at some point, you know, right after the first Omicron wave, had quite considerable immunity. And now that is starting to go down as... There has been less infection and people haven't been keeping up with vaccination. In some countries like China, there's a very large fraction of the population that is not immune or susceptible. And so they're at real risk for subsequent, you know, um, if there's any, if, if they step back on the zero COVID strategy, we will see a lot of COVID in a population that has that many people that are susceptible. You know, I think the, the high level take on this is that we have to live with COVID probably in the long run, immunity for the current variants that are circulating is going to go up and down. It goes up when people get vaccinated or there's been a wave of recent infection. But we should also recognize it's going to tend to, you know, peter off over time because immunity, uh, particularly for infection, does wane over time. And then when you combine that with going inside in the winter and increased potential for transmission, we just need to be aware and pay attention to levels of immunity. And as they start to sort of uh, drop off, uh, it's not, you know, we did it, we're over COVID, move on. We have to just keep track of this as we as we move forward. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Rees is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Grace Scullion. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.